can pick them up after class. Uh, all right. I'm hearing the end. I started this course talking about the Indo-Iranians, and I talked about them at some length, both linguistically and archaeologically and anthropologically to the degree we know anything, because when they came to Iran, they made a tremendous difference. And their traditions, their religious outlook, um, their political formations had a, an impact that lasted uh, long beyond the period when, uh, when rulers who were descended from them were in power. Uh, I talked quite a bit about Alexander the Great, because even though the Persians and the Macedonians whom he led into, uh, the Greeks and Macedonians whom he led into Iran were not enormously numerous, the impact of Hellenism uh, was, uh, was very substantial and long-lasting in a variety of areas, um, although perhaps had more of an impact in Mesopotamia and in the areas to the northeast of Iran than in the plateau area proper. Then I talked a good deal about Arabs, where their religion came from and, and so on, and the, some of the unexpected long-term uh, results of their uh, settlement in certain areas of Iran, particularly in, uh, in the plateau area and in the big garrison cities of Balkh and Merv. And of course, they had a long-term impact. Their writing system becomes the uh, uh, the vehicle for the new Persian language. Um, their religion becomes the religion of Iran, et cetera, et cetera. You know all that. I talked a lot about Turks. Turks come in, big impact. Um, and I'm not going to mention the impacts because that's what I lectured on last time. Uh, now, now I'm going to talk about the Mongols. I'm not going to say a whole lot. The Mongols came, had an enormous uh, immediate impact, but the long-term uh, result of the Mongol conquest is much harder to, uh, to define. And there's a question as to, to the degree to which things that happen under the Mongols relate specifically to the Mongols uh, as a ethnic uh, linguistic group or as a uh, you know, as an economic uh, formation of pastoral nomads, um, whether they relate more to the Mongols or to the Turks. Because by the time the Mongol armies came to Iran uh, in the first invasion of uh, 1218 to 1220 under Genghis Khan himself, and then under uh, in the 1250s under his grandson, Bulagu, uh, in a much longer term invasion that led to the establishment of a uh, formal Mongol state in Iran known as the Ilkhan state uh, and, and is remembered historically as much as anything for the destruction of the city of Baghdad and the bringing to an end of the Abbasid, the line of the Abbasid family ruling the caliphs of Baghdad. Uh, that's a spectacular event. Um, but the long-term impact of the Mongols is harder to define. 
as I say, when the Mongols got to Iran, particularly in the second invasion, there's a great question as to how many of them were Mongols and how many of them uh, were Turkish speakers. It seems quite clear that the people who end up influencing the later history of Iran, uh, Afghanistan, uh, northern India, um, uh, eastern Anatolia, uh, the people who end up influencing that later history, while in some measure they either use the name of the Mongols or have a direct connection with the Mongol uh, empire, uh, they are mostly Turkish speakers. There is virtually no residue of the Mongol language that remains uh, in the aftermath of the Mongol invasion. And only one ethnic group uh, in modern times uh, claims descent from the Mongols. And they are not in Iraq. These are the, uh, the Hazaras of the central uh, area of the Hindu Kush mountains in Afghanistan, uh, and the language they speak is Persian. The, uh, they are also Shiites, and as such have been subject to uh, terrible discrimination and um, persecution uh, in Afghanistan uh, throughout uh, much of the 20th century, including now. So, so the, the question of the Mongols is the sort of disproportion between their spectacular role in the historical narrative and their comparatively modest role uh, in, the, uh, in terms of long-term impact uh, on Iran. Uh, to some degree, this might be um, a consideration extended to areas further north, such as Russia and Ukraine. Uh, many historians have debated the theory of the Mongol yoke, that is to say the burden that the Mongols represented for the poor Russians who, had they not been toiling under the Mongol yoke, would have become French philosophes uh, instead of simply oppressors of serfs. Um, but even there, historiography has, uh, has begun to bounce back from the notion of blame everything on the Mongols. And to some degree, that is uh, that that's a, um, uh, a question that can be raised uh, uh, fairly broadly. Have the you know, one question is: Are the Mongols uh, penalized because their story is so well known, although not written in Mongolian? We have only one Mongolian text that uh, that talks about. Uh, the history of the Mongols. And that's called The Secret History of the Mongols. There's an English translation of it by Francis Cleves. Um, and that is a biography of Genghis Khan. And everything you ever read about the childhood of Genghis Khan, how he came to be the, uh, or Temujin, as he was uh, known by his personal name. Everything about the, the rise of Temujin to become uh, this great Khan who, who was able to hold together or to unite, to, to defeat, unite, and hold together for a long term uh, a coalition of Mongol tribes and Turkish-speaking tribes. Uh, that story, the beginning of that story, is told in the secret history of the Mongols, and then there's no further Mongolian history. 
So the history of the Mongols is told primarily in Persian, uh, less extensively by far in Arabic, and then in a variety of European languages uh, in the form of the reports of people who, uh, who went to Mongol territory uh, after the empire was established and came back and reported on what they saw or what they imagined they saw or what they thought their readers would like to think they saw because these reports say things that are not always credible. Uh, and also a variety of languages that report on the attacks of the Mongols in various parts of Europe, uh, in Eastern Europe, um, which are uh, told in the language of, uh, of you know, survivors. So the Mongols have an abundant history. The, uh, uh, the amount of writing done about them is enormous, both in uh, early sources and at the present day. Uh, the amount of that writing that is based upon uh, their narrative is very slight. Now, there's one exception to this. In China, <coughs> they established a dynasty that lasted for uh, 400 years, uh, from the middle of the 1200s uh, to the middle of the 1300s. And they took the dynastic name uh, Yuan, and so there are records of the Yuan dynasty, and you can read a lot. They happen to be in Chinese rather than Mongolian, but at least they are real records. Uh, at one time, there probably uh, were real records of this sort uh, in Iran uh, to talk about the Ilhans, and they would have been written in Persian uh, for the most part. We have some surviving documents from the Ilhan period, uh, you know, sometimes extremely elaborate uh, visual calligraphic creations, uh, but we don't have any archival materials uh, that still survive in, in, in at least some measure in China. Um, the, we also know that the administrators for the Ilhans in Iran were in close contact with the administrators for the Yuan in China. There is an excellent book by uh, perhaps the best of the, uh, not, I shouldn't say the best, I'm incredible, but uh, Thomas Alsen has written several books uh, on the Yuhans. And one of them, the specific name of which I forget, except it has culture in the title, um, is largely devoted to the, to the working relationship between the chief administrator of the Ilhan state in Persia and the chief administrator, or a chief administrator, of the Yuan uh, state in China. They were, uh, they, they wrote to each other, uh, and they had personal contacts, and they shared many of the policies. Uh, the policies that were, that worked in China generally did not work in India or in uh, Iran. But then a number of those that, um, that were tried in China didn't work in China either. Uh, so, so historiographically, you have this phenomenon of a, uh, a tremendous invasion or series of invasions that caused vast loss of life, destruction of cities and so forth and so on, 
in which the story of the invasion is told primarily by the invaders, uh, and yet a number of the most prominent invaders worked for the Mongols. Uh, it remains a question to this day why, uh, say, an Iranian who works for the Mongols would spend so much time describing evil things done by the Mongols. There is a theory that uh, portraying the Mongols as the most overwhelmingly devastating, powerful, murderous group of people imaginable uh, was, a, was a policy of political value to the Mongols because it scared the bejesus out of everybody. So when you have a story, uh, say the city that I work on is Nishapur, or did have for many years, uh, Nishapur was destroyed. You know, they, they came in, they killed everybody, they leveled the, the land, they came back two days later to kill the cats and dogs and the people who had been hiding in the ruins. Utterly bleak and Juvaini tells about how only owls were left in the, the wasteland they left behind. Why was Nishapur destroyed? Because it resisted the Mongols? No, because in the nearby city of Tus, the people of Tus, who had been, like those of Nishapur, under the control of a, of a Mongol uh, a general or uh, military governor ever since the time of the first invasion in 1218, 1220, um, the people in Tus rose up and killed the governor and sent his head to Nishapur. Thank you very much. There's a FedEx for you. It's the head of the governor of the next town. So the Mongols said, okay, you know, if you accept you know, boxed heads from people uh, you don't know, you're responsible. And so they came and destroyed the city of Nishapur. And you go to Nishapur, and there's this vast area of ruins. It's just that they aren't Mongol ruins. Uh, that was a city that destroyed itself 100 years earlier in the, uh, in the 1130s. On the outskirts of that city, there was a, a, another city of Nishapur, which was maybe 20% the size of the medieval city. And it had a wall around it. And that's the city that apparently the Mongols attacked, a much smaller city. Uh, one reason we think that we know that that's the city the Mongols attacked is because one of the people famously killed in the Mongol invasions was a great Persian poet named Attar, wrote a book called The Conference of the Birds, a great classic of Sufi, uh, of, of Sufi imagination. Uh, and the, the grave of Attar is, you look at the aerial photographs, it's very, the grave of Attar is located at the southern uh, on the southern, at the wall, on the southern edge of the city that the Mongols apparently destroyed. Um, we don't actually know whether this is the city the Mongols destroyed. It has not been excavated. Uh, there's nothing to excavate. In other words, you look on the ground, and the ground is flat. Uh, whereas in the ground in the medieval city, it's full of mounds and hummocks and the remains of buried buildings. Uh, now, either the Mongols destroyed the city and flattened it, which they claim, or which was claimed on their behalf, uh, or the city wasn't heavily populated. It's, it's very hard to tell. But in any case, it was the story of this sort of devastation, whether it was to Nishapur or to Balkh or to any number of other cities that created this, uh, this image of the Mongols as being total destroyers. 
They probably were. Uh, when you read these accounts, uh, and they say, well, they took the number of civilians that they captured, and they divided it by the number of people in the army, and then they assigned uh, the, uh, the product to each person, say, you, know, you divide you know, 20,000 by 5,000, and each one gets to kill four people, then you do it very systematically. There's a kind of a Nazi uh, system to the whole thing, um, if it was true, if it's true. But certainly the Mongols uh, did not object to, the, uh, to, this, to this image. And that image has been a, a barrier until very, fairly recently toward any kind of effort to, to reevaluate the Mongol uh, episode in history. Uh, right now, the Mongols are really on a tear because um, so many historians uh, nowadays say, gee, the Mongol period is sort of like the European voyages of discovery. Uh, it is when Europe and Asia came together in one big thing, like Europe and the New World coming together in one big thing. And they say, oh, yeah, but the Mongols killed everybody they encountered, as if the Europeans didn't. <laughs> uh, you know, we, the, you know, most of the people in the New World died. Uh, some of them died. Most of them died by disease. But certainly many of them died because the conquistadores uh, were not nice people. Uh, were they Mongol level not nice? Yeah. Uh, read the conquest of Mexico, the conquest of Peru by Prescott. You, you really have a tale of massive slaughter of virtually unarmed people by European standards, by Europeans who are uh, vastly superior militarily. And it reads sort of like what the Mongols did. But we read this now uh, from the European sources who did the killing. And that isn't the memory they want. The memory they want is how uh, you know, the world opened up to, to Europe, welcomed Europe with open arms, welcomed Christianity, and so on and so on. Uh, and so that's the master narrative we have. The Mongols have their master narrative written by non-Mongols, don't write uh, histories in their own language. And now you have historians who are saying, well, why don't we look at it with the same circumspect way in which we look at Europeans and see that the good the Mongols associated with outweighed the bad. Yeah, it probably didn't. Uh, I think there may be an overcorrective here. The destruction of the Mongols seems to be uh, incontrovertible, uh, and yet there there are good things to balance against that. The uh, uh, and some things that happened under the Mongols, uh, you know, like the. Uh, apparently the origin of the Black Death, uh, which seems to come from southwest China and move northward uh, in the uh, 1340s because of the movements back and forth of Mongol armies that, that go as, south, as far south as North Vietnam, the area of Annam. Uh, apparently that was the... Uh, the activity that took a, uh, a locally endemic disease, bubonic plague, out of southwest China and then got it into a network that gradually reaches into Central Asia, gradually crosses Central Asia and hits uh, the Middle East and Europe. Uh, that can no more be blamed on the Mongols than the measles and uh, smallpox that hit the New World can be blamed on the, um, on the Europeans. 
and yet the, uh, uh, the, the actual physical slaughter does seem to be substantial. What happens when you have a, uh, a highly reported episode of this sort is it becomes a historical great attractor. Uh, everything is ascribed to the Bagals. Um, in the case of Iranian history, Iran, uh, I can't see any way to, to avoid the conclusion that Iran was largely devastated before the Mongols arrived. But the history of Iran is focused upon Iran being destroyed by the Mongols. Uh, Baghdad is destroyed in uh, 1258. But you read the history of Baghdad, um, Baghdad was sort of like central Beirut, Beirut in, you know, in 1975. I mean, it, Baghdad was already destroyed before the Mongols got there to a large extent. The Mongols finished it off. As with many evasion, invasions in history, in other words, uh, the, uh, the conquest is to some degree made possible by uh, disruptions or destructions or loss of life that preceded the conquest. One reason the conquest seems to be comparatively easy uh, is that the resistance, the ability to fight back is comparatively uh, undermined by what went before. If the Mongols had come a century earlier, in 1118 instead of 1218, I think it's very questionable whether they would have conquered Iran. Uh, the Seljuks at that time were still capable of mounting a major army uh, whereas the Khwarezm Shahs, who nominally had an empire throughout Iran in the early 1200s, never fought the Mongols. Uh, according to the narrative we have, you had this great Khan, uh, Genghis Khan, out in Mongolia. He entered into a certain amount of correspondence with the Khwarezm Shah, uh, who was ruling in uh, the area of uh, around the Aral Sea, but whose armies are nominally occupying pretty much all of Iran and much of Iraq. Uh, in that correspondence, the Khwarezm Shah has the, the epistolary bad uh, form of ad addressing Genghis Khan in a demeaning fashion. Now, dissing Genghis Khan proved to be a great historical error. And so Genghis Khan said, nobody writes a letter that treats me this way like saying, you know, uh, to my uh, to my son uh, Genghis Khan from the Lord of the World, something like that. You know, it, it was rude. Um, so Genghis Khan and his entire army, Mongols and Turks together, but at that early point, still mostly Mongols, uh, they moved westward. Uh, the Khwarezmian army nominally was a very large army. It never fought a battle. Uh, it simply dissolved. The uh, Khwarezm Shah. Mohammed um, uh, he fled and he ended up on an island in the Caspian Sea uh, where he lived for a few more years he was never caught nor did uh, Genghis Khan particularly try and catch him because according to one book that we have that gives the romantic details it was, it was Mohammed's son who tried to gather the Khwarezmian resistance, and his name
uh, Jalaluddin Mangoberti. I spell Mangoberti differently every time I teach the course because uh, nobody agrees how it should be spelled. Um, so you can spell it however you like, if, should you have any opportunity ever to remember it. Uh, Jalaluddin um, was a vigorous and military soul. He, uh, he fled across Iran to western Iran with the, Geng the army of Genghis Khan behind him. He uh, moved south to southwestern Iran, doubled back and started back toward the east across southern Iran. And you know, the, 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 the text, you know, Jalaluddin is just leaving a village when the front riders of the Mongols are entering the other side of the village. You know, it's just, it's a chase scene. So we have this chase going across southern Iran. Uh, when he gets to southern Afghanistan, uh, one of the branches of Genghis Khan's army, because he divided it in order to make sure he found Jalaluddin, one of the branches finds Jalaluddin, uh, there is a battle, and the Khwarezmian forces that have gradually joined Jalaluddin during this long chase, uh, they defeat the Mongols. But, yeah, he's the son of Muhammad the Khwarezm Shah. Uh, his father is still alive, so he's not himself the Shah. Uh, after he defeats a branch of the Mongol army that um, pins down his location. So he keeps moving and he heads across Afghanistan and into Pakistan. And finally, uh, the army of Genghis Khan, commanded by the Khan himself, catches up with him on the banks of the Indus River in Pakistan. And there, there's a battle. All the Khwarezmians are killed. Jalaluddin spurs his horse and leaps into the river. You think of it as a high cliff. Actually, the Indus isn't a very, you know, not a big deal to leap into the river. And he's, um, he's swimming across, and the Mongols pulling their daggers, putting their teeth, and diving in to kill him in the water. And Genghis Khan says, no, this is enough. And then Genghis Khan and his army go home to Mongolia. Jalaluddin swims across the river and escapes. And he goes to Delhi, which by that time, uh, we're talking here, uh, you know, 1220 had been under Muslim uh, control for about 200 years. Um, he goes to Delhi, and the Muslim ruler of Delhi says, you know, why don't you move along? Because, you know, we don't particularly want you here, and for good reason. And so Jalaluddin, after uh, staying in Delhi for a bit, goes back to Iran. And there he finds that one of his brothers has maintained some military capacity and holdings in southwest Iran. So he kills his brother and uh, takes over and sets up a new Khwarezmian army and a new Khwarezmian empire. It's no longer located in the northeast uh, around Khwarezm because the Mongols have left, uh, Genghis Khan has left a military force to hold the territory that had been occupied. So the new Khwarezmian army is focused in Iraq. Now, primarily northern Iraq, going up into eastern Anatolia, Kurdistan, and so forth. And, uh, and there, the Khwarezmians um, managed to accumulate them for, them for themselves a record, according to the uh, Persian Chronicles, in which they are every bit as barbaric as the Mongols in killing everybody, uh, taking uh, no, um, you know, giving no quarter to prisoners, that sort of thing. And eventually Jalaluddin is um, 
waylaid by some Kurds in the mountains who want to steal his boots. He's killed, his boots are stolen, and that's the end of the Khwarazmian Empire. Now, this is not an interesting story. It's a, it's a, not that it has a certain charm, I agree, but, um, but it doesn't take you very far in terms of, of grand historiography, except <coughs> that makes it clear that the Khwarazmians, in terms of how they conducted military affairs, and they are Turkish speakers, are not different from the Mongols. Now, if the Mongols build a pyramid of skulls, hey, I can build a pyramid of skulls. Um, and pyramids of skulls become kind of old hat. Uh, so the Khwarezmian uh, episode leaves you more than anything with this sense that Genghis Khan didn't care much about Iran. Now, he was dissed. He went and chased away the, um, you know, the insect who had dissed him. And then he went home, leaving his people in control of a country that he knew nothing about and had no particular interest in. The Mongols had a tremendous interest in China, though Genghis Khan did not, uh, was not the primary conqueror of China. It was his grandson, um, Kublai. Uh, who is the the brother of Hulagu. When you get to that generation, uh, the family understood that Hulagu would go to the west and uh, conquer what he could, namely Iran, you know, form a state there, and Kublai would move south and take over in, in China. But the Mongols, pretty much from beginning to end, qua Mongols, as opposed to being this multi-ethnic Turco-Mongol constellation, were more interested in China than they were in uh, in either Russia or uh, or Iran. Uh, the Mongol culture was much more strongly in influenced by uh, by Chinese culture. Chinese culture is what they regarded as being the, uh, the, the the pinnacle of civilization. They knew little about and cared less for the uh, for the urban um, uh, you know, Muslim culture of Iran, which in any case was in great decay by that time, uh, and the same thing for the uh, uh, for what passed as a culture in the Kievan state of Russia, where you had uh, you know Russian peasantry ruled by Swedish lords. It means that the the history of the Ilhans does not. It, it, it is within the history of the entire Mongol Imperium and from the point of view of travelers who go from you know, Italy to China, it's very important to realize that this is a single Imperium. But the story in, of the Ilkhans in Iran is different from that of, the, uh, of their relatives in, um, in Russia, the Golden Horde uh, that descend from um, Genghis, Khan, Genghis Khan's son Juchi. Uh, and it's different from the people who are uh, out in Central Asia and different from the ones in Mongolia and different from the ones in China. So when you read the history of the Ilkhanate, the tendency is to read it as a purely Persian history. Uh, pastoral nomad conquerors enter the country, uh, rule for a period of time, the last of the Ilkhans, uh, whose name is Abu Sa'id, uh, dies in 1335. 
uh, and uh, this makes them in, so, in some degree uh, a compare and contrast uh, thing with respect to the Turks under the Seljuks. Are the Mongols simply a continuation or an intensification of what had begun under, uh, under the Seljuks, or are they uh, substantially different? It's not an easy comparison because the Seljuks ended Iran as a very prosperous and flourishing uh, country at the beginning point of a decline. By the time the Mongols came, 200 years later, Iran had already uh, substantially lost its, its economic uh, base and its cities already declined. So the experience that the initial Oghuz Turks had when they came in uh, was encountering flourishing uh, cities built around uh, Islam. Uh, by the time the Mongols come, those flourishing cities have diminished and the Muslim uh, elite, uh, you know, the intellectual elite, uh, have to a substantial degree emigrated uh, to other lands. So you don't have uh, a very good comparison to make in that respect. But one thing that is clear about the, uh, about the Seljuks, uh, according to the sources that we have, is that they had become personally Muslims before they entered Iran. Uh, maybe all of their followers among the nomads had not. But the ruling family was a Muslim family when they entered Iran. Whereas the Mongols, when they conquered either under Genghis Khan and even later under Bulagu, were not Muslims. The fact that they are not Muslims uh, adds enormously to the weight they play as this great attractor in history where everything gets, you know, the, yeah, everything bad gets sucked into the Mongol uh, vortex because it is the, um, the first time in uh, Muslim history where you have a conquest that results in large populations of Muslims being ruled by, um, by non-Muslims. Now, for the people who were in Iran, those whom we know most about are the administrative elite who wrote things. And it appears that their feeling was, you know, we used to have Turks ruling us, now we have Mongols ruling us, a job is a job. If I, you know, I'll be a vizier for the Mongols. They don't seem to have been wildly upset. Uh, they were probably just happy to survive, okay. and so on. Uh, though they surely noted something that modern historians note uh, extensively, that the administrative ranks of the uh, Mongol government include lots of Jews and Christians because the Mongols are not Muslims, but the Mongols don't pay a whole lot of attention to religion. Uh, there are members of the Mongol, of the family of Genghis Khan who are Buddhists, members who are Christians, uh, members who become Muslims. Um, certainly uh, many, if not most, of the tribal people from Mongolia who followed them were uh, Know, very loosely would be described as uh, following shamanistic uh, religious um, 
traditions, uh, the Mongols didn't care very much what your religion was. Uh, today, that is lauded as a kind of, you know, anticipatory secularism, and it wouldn't be nice if we could all copy the Mongols and uh, and make a career open to talent, so that, uh, you know, so that, you know, a Muslim could become president of the United States if he were sufficiently talented and had a name like Hussein. Um, but the uh, but the fact of the matter is, it, you know, the, the Mongols. Uh, were much more that they were interested in Mongol and Mongolian ethnicity, so that the commanders were primarily Mongols, even if the soldiers were increasingly Turks or Chinese, or um, probably Iranians and Russians in certain areas. But from the point of view of Islamic history, uh, as opposed to the subcategory of Islamic history that we think of as Iranian history, but in Islamic history the Mongols are just devastating because this is non-Muslims uh, ruling Muslims. Uh, might not have been so bad in fact, but if you were looking at it from the outside, this was uh, a, an almost uh, a situation that was horrifying. So when you read the Arabic historians, who are mostly living outside of Mongol territory, uh, then the episode of the Mongols is devastating. Whereas you read the Persian historians, most of whom are working for the Mongols, the devastation, the physical devastation is there, but the cultural devastation that is implied in the Arabic accounts doesn't seem to be that important. Because for one thing, uh, Persian historical writing flourishes under the Mongols. Ilkhan historians and their successors set the model for how to write history in Persian. Uh, very ornate, uh, highly, uh, you know, a, a prose style, highly involved with images and metaphors and, and so forth. This is the great school of Persian historical writing, begins under the Mongols, and has no particular effect in the Arab lands. The ornate, the ornate style. The ornate style, yeah. So, uh, for some reason, people tend to think that it has to do with the Arab culture. No, no. The the the, the ornate style mm -hmm. in writing in in, in Arabic uh, probably goes back more than anything to Maqamat literature of the. Uh, of the 10th, uh, 11th century. People like Medea uh, Zaman al-Hanavani or al-Hariri, they write a kind of ornate prose. But the Arabic ornate prose tends to focus on, on uh, rhyming prose so that you, you, you write phrases that all rhyme in the same word uh, in a sort of um, homage to the style of the Quran. Persian ornate writing doesn't go in for the rhyming phrases so much as it does for the elaborate uh, imagery. You know, the Mongols go in to kill everybody, and you know, the owl of devastation nested in the minaret of uh, of humiliation and sang a song of abjection to the you know, etc. It goes on and on. Just terrible stuff to read. But it shows that that Iranian letters is moving in a, in a direction that flourishes 
beginning under the Ilkhans, and continues to move in a direction that becomes farther and farther from the, uh, from the Arabic. Um, but the, the overall history of the Mongols is this blend uh, for the Middle East of what the Persian writers write and what the Arabic writers write. Now, the Arabic writers, and here the, the one who seems to have the most influence is a very, uh, uh, a man writing in Egypt, named Al-Kalkashandi. Uh, he wrote a very, very uh, extensive work called uh, you know, Daybreak for the Night Blind, Subhalasha. Uh, and in that work, he, he talks a lot about the horrors of the Mongols. But of course, he never witnessed any of these horrors. Um, so there are certain set pieces that arise as here's what is bad about having the Mongols rule. And there are, um, this is where you get the huge emphasis on the um, destruction of the, of the caliphate. Now, the Mongols uh, captured Baghdad in 1258. They took the last caliph. They rolled him up in a carpet and they trampled him to death. You do that so that the blood isn't actually shed. You turn the ruler into pate, and uh, but you haven't visibly shed his shed his blood. Uh, and then, okay, this is devastating from an Islamic point of view. Doesn't appear to have devastated the Persians very much. Uh, and of course, it did not devastate the Shiites at all, uh, because the advisor to Hulagu, uh, uh, the uh, the, the top Iranian advisor to Hulagu at the time of the conquest of Baghdad was uh, an Ismaili uh, Shiite, Shiite uh, Nasir Din of Tusi. I'm sorry, he, uh, he's not an Ismaili, he's a 12er he's Shiite. Uh, you're right. Um, uh, supposedly, um, Hulagu asked what would happen if I killed the caliph and a whole range of Sunni advisors said oh the mountains would collapse and the seas would boil and the heavens would you know, turn red and rain blood and God knows what would happen the end of the world would come then he asked Nasir ad-Din Tusi and Nasir ad-Din Tusi said if you kill the caliph you will sit in the chair that the caliph was sitting in <laughs> and Hulagu said that sounds like good advice so, <laughs> so he kills the caliph um, huge impact uh, killing the caliph, but primarily an impact outside of Iran. Uh, in the same way that uh, when the when the caliphate is killed off again in uh, in the 1920s, there's a huge impact, but it's primarily in India. Uh, you know, the people for whom the caliph meant something uh, were not uh, did not constitute all Muslims, but Muslims, you know relating to their own uh, more local circumstances. So that was a big, a big deal. Um, it also had big consequences because subsequent to the destruction of the caliphate and the fact that the shadow caliph that gets resurrected in, uh, in Cairo uh, two years later in 1260, uh, that he never plays a real 
uh, a significant historical role. After the destruction of the caliphate, the primary centralizing focus for Islam shifts from the caliphate to the pilgrimage. So that the history of the Hajj, of the pilgrimage, prior to the Mongols, is um, nobody's ever written a book on it. Uh, they could. We don't have any database for history of Muslim pilgrimage. But it's not terribly uh, profound. Rulers don't go on pilgrimage. Um, when people go on pilgrimage, they go, to, they go to Mecca, perform their rituals, and they go home. Uh, by the 1300s, you're beginning to have a new genre of literature, which are pilgrimage narratives, where people go on pilgrimage and then go home and write about it. And the pilgrimage becomes this terribly important thing, and you have the new phenomenon that somebody who goes on the pilgrimage now has a title. He's known as Haji or El Haj. Prior to the Mongols, there were no Hajis. People went on the pilgrimage, but it didn't change their status. So that particularly over the Sunni world, uh, the uh, and when they go to Mecca by the 1400s, and even in the 1300s, they sometimes will stay for three years, four years, five years studying Islam and madrasas that are built in Mecca and Medina. Um, so you do get a, a big impact on Islam, but it's primarily on Sunni Islam uh, and primarily for areas west of Iran. Uh, the, the emphasis on, on the caliphate, therefore, is not wrong. It's just it's not central to, to Iranian history. A more telling example from Al-Qaqajandi, from an Iranian point of view, is um, what he calls the Yasa. Uh, the Yasa is presented as the law code of the Mongols. Uh, and so he contrasts Sharia and Yasa. Sharia is the law of the Muslims. Yasa is the law of the Mongols. And then he says the Mongols imposed Yasa on everybody and made them follow the rules of the Yasa. In order to make that clear cut, uh, he did the sort of thing that uh, New York Post writers will do today when they say, oh, the Sharia is fully and completely described by the cutting off of hands of thieves. No, no big effort to understand the Sharia, but rather to, to show it as something evil. So Al-Qaqashandi Al wanted to show it as something evil. How do you do that? What is the most horrifying thing that you can have? Um, well, it has to do with what you eat. So that elk, uh, Muslims are prohibited uh, as are Jews. Or as in the book of Genesis, all humans in the entire world are prohibited by God from consuming blood. That's why your Middle Eastern friends always order their meat well done in the restaurant because nobody wants that, that juice coming out of the meat except you know, good old Protestant Americans. Um, yes, the, um, so what could be worse uh, than violating this taboo on eating, uh, on eating blood? For the, uh, you know, if, if you're a Muslim, if you're praying and your nose bleeds and you get blood on your, on your clothes, you have to go and change your clothes, stop your prayer, change your clothes, perform your, your ritual ablutions over again, and then start the prayer over again. Because blood is really a polluting 
uh, a polluting substance. Uh, the Mongol notion, according to the Alcal Kashandi, is that when you kill an animal, um, you should uh, kill it in such a way that the blood remains in the meat. It is not drained out. This is not cutting the throat and allowing the blood to drain out. It is um, uh, opening the chest, reaching in and squeezing the heart, yeah, which is really cool. And then, then the blood stays in the meat because having blood in the meat is good for the Mongols. It's not just a Mongol thing. Uh, going back even to, uh, to um, early Iranian sacrifice in the earliest stages of Iranian history, when you sacrificed animals, uh, you strangled them. Uh, you did not cut the throat and drain the blood because uh, strangling leaves the blood, uh, the blood in the meat. So it's really this question of a blood taboo, which to uh, Semitic peoples and people following their religions is, is, is absolute. Uh, uh, and to pastoralists, uh, it's different. So Al-Kalkashandi says, the Yasa is imposed on everyone, so all the Muslims were forced to eat meat that had blood in it or to become vegetarians. There's no record of Iran going through a profound vegetarian episode. But for that matter, there's no evidence that the Yasa was imposed on everybody, except that Al-Kalkashandi says so. And he, he portrays this big law code. In modern times, particularly uh, uh, under the work of David Ayalon, a, a terrific uh, Israeli scholar of the last generation, he examined the Yasa and said, what, what was the Yasa? And he, he determines, and everyone now agrees with this, that Yasa was um, similar to the word uh, kanun, which comes from the Christian word canon, meaning a particular law. Uh, so that in Muslim legal text, a kanun is a specific law that is not part of the Sharia. It's a, uh, no, it's a law from some other source. Uh, the word doesn't get used in particular before the Mongols. It becomes very common after the Mongols. So the yasa is not a law code, but rather it is a, a specific law. And the the laws of the Mongols were simply the edicts of the rulers. Genghis Khan uh, would uh, enunciate a rule, and that was a yasa. And then his successors, they would have their rules. To some degree, this was cumulative, but not necessarily. In other words, a particular Khan could uh, have an edict that would disagree with a, with a predecessor. This notion of the law uh, consisting of a collection of edicts by rulers uh, is not particularly uh, surprising. This is what Roman law was. When the great collection of Roman laws was made in the sixth century under the reign, in the reign of the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, the Corpus Juris Civilis, uh, the body of civil law what it consisted of was simply a collection of all the edicts of the Roman emperors up to that time. Uh, because if you take all these edicts together, then that constitutes uh, the law. Uh, so the Yasa, in a sense, was a law like that. But it was portrayed by Kalkashendi as this 
uh, abomination that uh, that no Muslims could possibly uh, could possibly uh, uh, live with. Uh, now, why did the Arabs portray the Mongols in this light? Well, um, in 1260, two years after the destruction of the Caliphate, uh, the uh, successor to Genghis Khan back in Mongolia uh, died, and the major members of the family uh, went back to Mongolia to decide who would be the next great Khan. This was a kind of family gathering called a Qureltai uh, in, in Mongolian. Uh, and it could last for months. And all the major members of the family had to be there. It, it's rather interesting that during the period of the, uh, during the interregnum between the death of one Khan and the final emergence of another Khan, uh, the empire was ruled by the widow of the, of the deceased Khan. Uh, and some of these uh, women uh, were very active and, and powerful uh, rulers until uh, an agreement was made for a new for a new Khan. Uh, so Hulagu uh, uh, went back to Iran, and he left a army to continue operations. But by this time, Iran had been consolidated as Mongol territory. Eastern Anatolia had been consolidated as Mongol territory. Iraq had been conquered, but perhaps not thoroughly assimilated, and the Mongols were pressing on, and they had an army in Syria. Uh, the army in Syria uh, became a, um, a holding force of the sort that Genghis Khan left behind when he went home in 1212, and a group of Turkish Mamluks, that is to say professional soldiers originating from a slave uh, origin uh, based in Egypt. A group of Mamluks went out, confronted the Mongol army in Syria uh, at the battle of the, uh, the spring of Goliath, Ain Jalut, in 1260, and they defeated the Mongols. Uh, there were two Mamluk commanders who shared in the victory, and one of them made it back to Cairo, the other did not. Uh, and so the guy who made it back to Cairo become, you know, declares himself, uh, well, he's all, he becomes the Sultan. And his name is Abibars. A Turkish Mamluk uh, commander. Now, I'm not going to get into the history of the Mamluks uh, in Egypt, but what had happened was that in 1250, the, um, uh, the dynasty set up um, after the Third Crusade by Saladin, who had been the great foe of the Christians. I'm not going into crusading history. He had set up a dynasty uh, named after his, his father, uh, Job, in Arabic, Ayub, known as the Ayyubid dynasty. And the Ayyubids had taken over in Egypt and Syria and, their, and, um, and had formed a, a strong state and uh, fought against the Crusaders. Uh, by this time, uh, well, say by 1250, the main thrust of the Crusades are over. 
Uh, the fifth crusade uh, was not against the, ho- the fourth crusade had gone off to conquer Constantinople uh, to sort of uh, in order to make itself financially uh, viable. The fifth crusade was not aimed at Jerusalem, it was aimed at Egypt. Uh, Saint Louis, the king of France, went to Egypt, um, fought, uh, lost uh, a battle, went home, uh, and the um, uh, the Ayyubid uh, Sultan who had defeated uh, uh, King Louis uh, ended up in charge and then he died. Uh, one of his relatives came from Syria and said, okay, uh, my cousin died, so now I'm the Sultan. And all of the Mamluks whom, who had been owned by the dead Sultan said, we fought a battle, we won the crusade, we defeated the French king, and we're not going to turn the state over to you, so they killed him. And then they decided, hey, killing him seems good. So they ruled simply as an army from 1250 uh, onward. They didn't know exactly how to do this, because how can slaves become sultans? So they they would pick a, a child from the Ayyubid family and say, he's the real sultan, or very important for a woman at that time, uh, is the widow of the dead sultan, so two or three these pretenders marry her, and uh, you know say through her we become uh, sultans. But in any case, from 1250 to 1260, you have, a, you have military slaves ruling in Egypt and Syria. Uh, then in 1260, they defeat the Mongols, and that becomes uh, a legitimizing force on the scale of what will happen when anyone catches Osama bin Laden. Just imagine the president who can report to the country, we have located and killed Osama bin Laden. And then we have a referendum to make him president for life. Because (laughs) after all, if you've killed Osama bin Laden, can I say, but we don't know if his movement is done. We will continue to crusade on your behalf. You know, you become Batman and Superman all in one. but that's what happened with the, uh, with the Mamluks. They came back under Baibars. They come back to Egypt. And they say, we defeated the Mongols, but the Mongol threat remains. <coughs> so promoting the Mongol threat is a political goal on the part of the writers who write for the Mamluks in Arabic. So it isn't simply a, a distortion or a mistake that this... Um, this uh, demonization of the Mongols becomes much more important in Arabic historiography where they don't know much about the Mongols as opposed to Persian historiography where they know a lot about the Mongols. It's because it plays a very important uh, political role. And that political role is played in Egypt and Syria um, pretty much until the end of the Ilkhan period. The Mamluk sultans say, the Mongols may come tomorrow. So you know, the security situation. We have code orange. You know, Mongols are reported to be coming. So let's everybody obey me. Um, It's hard to get into the mindset of that faraway time. Uh, But but just imagine that you would have a government that would say such such crap. Um, So so you you can take apart the historiographic uh, complex. Say, so, okay, the Persian writers 
who are flourishing culturally, but talk about the the devastation portrayed by the Mongols, but talk about it in really poetic ways, uh, maybe they're serving a certain Mongol interest. Uh, the Arabic writers uh, who are talking about the horror of living under non-Muslim Mongol barbarian blood eaters, um, they have a political interest. Uh, and the same thing would be applied to you know, uh, Italian travelers or Russian chroniclers and so forth. Everyone has an interest in a portrayal of the Mongols, but we don't have a Mongol uh, portrayal of themselves. And this makes a really cool situation for writing history because uh, you have to balance a whole, uh, a whole panoply of biases. Um, and uh, uh, this still hasn't been, been successfully done. I mean, lots and lots of work are being, is being done on the, on, on the Mongols. But the question of how to balance these different accounts is difficult. From the point of view of Iranian history, um, the perhaps the one thing other than devastation that happens in Iran that ends up being talked about the most, and here again, uh, a lot of it coming from Arabic sources, is the destruction of the Nizari Ismailis, the assassins. Hulagu is portrayed as moving west, with the goal not to destroy the caliphate, but rather to uh, to consolidate his hold in Iran and destroy the assassins, because the assassins have had the, the bad taste to kill some of the Mongols. And so we have de uh, descriptions in both Persian and Arabic of, of how the, the assassins are destroyed, and their fortresses are reduced, and they're laid siege, and they're devastated, and their libraries are burned, and uh, awful things happen to the assassins, and they're all completely exterminated until the 18th century. It turns out they're still there. Um, and they are now the, the benevolent and uh, liberal-looking um, uh, you know, followers of the Aga Khan of the present day. Uh, perhaps they never were as evil as this tradition portrays it, because there's an interest in, in demonizing them. But otherwise, if you try and make a balance sheet for what the, the Mongols do in Iran, you come down to this question of, was it the Mongols? Or are they simply continuing, in some ways, things that had begun earlier under the Turks? Um, there are three uh, ways I think that you can argue that there's a long-term impact of the Mongols that is not an ethno-linguistic impact um, and is not an obvious uh, offshoot of the destruction that was, uh, that was uh, wrought by the, by the invading armies. One of them has to do with this question of Yasa. The Mongol law doesn't continue very long because by the late 1200s, the rulers of the Ilkhans, like the rulers of the Golden Horde in Russia, have converted to Islam. So you hear no more about the Yasa as a law code, except when you read Al-Kakashandri's uh, work. Um, now the, the Ilkhans are Muslims, although they don't seem to, be, seem to be able to decide whether they're Sunnis or Shiites. 
and they don't seem to care very much or to know very much. But in any case, they're nominally Muslims. We know this because their coins will have Muslim inscriptions and the chronicles say they became Muslims. Um, but the idea of a yasa doesn't, doesn't go away. The yasa becomes the edict of the ruler. And explicitly, uh, by the 1300s, we have texts in which the word yasa and the word kanun are synonymous. And kanun was this word that referred to an edict of a ruler, or edict uh, in canon law. It comes from, from a church council, but it means a specific law. And a yasa is simply the, Mon the Mongol <coughs> word for a specific law. Uh, but from the Mongol period on, the idea that a ruler can make law becomes more important than it ever was before. So, um, say, by the Ottoman period, we have a character, a great ruler of the early 16th century, Suleiman the Magnificent, who is known uh, uh, in Ottoman history as Kanuni Suleiman. Um, uh, normally translated as Suleiman, the lawgiver. No, no Umayyad or Abbasid Caliph or any emir ruling in Iran was ever called the lawgiver. So where did the idea come from that the ruler's laws are important enough that you could call him the lawgiver? He probably wasn't called the lawgiver during his own lifetime. Anyway, it's a later epithet. But the idea that the ruler can, can create law in a, in a space that exists alongside the Sharia, but is not part of the Sharia, uh, seems to be a long-term um, residue of, uh, of the Mongol period. It's, it's hard to tell. It's not, uh, the connection is not uh, terribly, um, terribly clear in, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the sources, but I think that that is a connection because certainly later Muslim history whether in Iran or elsewhere, has a lot more uh, rulers who are making laws uh, than it has um, uh, simply the understood that the, the, that the Sharia is the entire thing. Uh, we know that earlier rulers prior to the Mongols, including Abbasid caliphs, made laws that were not part of the Sharia, but they were ashamed of it. Uh, a law that is not in the Sharia was called uh, Max. The plural was Bukus. And we have a number of caliphs, uh, particularly when the, caliph, the caliphate is having a hard time financially, where the caliph comes to power and, and the first thing he does is announce that he is canceling all the Mukus. But then when he leaves power, his successor cancels the mukus. Well, how do those mukus come back in force if he canceled them all? It's because in order to raise money, he, is, he assigns you know, tolls and other sorts of taxes that are not visualized in the Sharia. So the mukus are, are non-Sharia laws that rulers impose, but they don't keep a record of it. They don't, uh, they don't accept it as being law in a in a profound sense, because the Sharia dominates everything. After the Mongols, these uh, non-Sharia, the space for non-Sharia law uh, becomes more important and ultimately plays a role 
uh, down in the 19th century in efforts to introduce law that is different from the Sharia in, in a so-called modernization process, which I'll talk about next semester in a different course. Um, okay, that's one impact. A second impact um, has to do with the impact of, has to do with the image of Genghis Khan. Uh, Genghis Khan is the only figure subsequent to Alexander the Great who has the kind of mythic uh, impact that Alexander had. Now, of course, many people in the European-American background don't think any, you know, very often about the romance of Genghis Khan. Uh, because he doesn't happen to have this mythic impact among us. But in, uh, in Central Asia and in the surrounding lands that were once part of the Mongol Imperium, uh, Genghis Khan had a, played an enormous role. And there is a profound uh, orientation toward the idea that descendants of Genghis Khan uh, have a right to rule. Uh, we haven't encountered this idea of a right to rule inherent in a family before, except in the idea that the imams uh, should come from the family of Muhammad, or the caliphs should come from the family of, uh, of Umayyah or of Abbas. But now you have the idea that uh, descendants of Genghis Khan are kind of a natural ruling, uh, you know, ruling body. So many of the wars that take place uh, subsequent the Mongol period in, involve uh, members of Genghis Khan's family or uh, in-laws uh, of Genghis Khan's family. Because if you marry into the family, uh, then you can then you can call yourself brother-in-law or son-in-law. Yeah. Is there any truth to the rumor that uh, Genghis Khan has like a hundred million uh, descendants? Descendants of oh, the DNA thing? Yeah, I think it was one million. Whatever the number was, I have no idea. I am so skeptical of the historical reports based on DNA that I'm just uh, not willing to say anything about it. In other words, I think it's bullshit. Uh, <laughs> but that's the nothing I would say were to say something. Um, the uh, okay. So for the, one thing that, that this does for Iran that it tends to move the, 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 um, the military frontiers northward. In other words, Central Asia, Afghanistan, India, Sungri, uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire. This becomes the new war zone of Iran as opposed to an earlier war zone uh, that somehow related to the Arabs. The Arabs are now gone. Uh, and you have rulers who, who consider themselves either because they're descendants of Genghis Khan or because they are alleging that there's a certain right to rule inherent in a family who become um, uh, rulers in a more uh, sort of legitimate, you know, uh, mythologically legitimate fashion. The Ottoman family, for example. They believe that the Ottoman family has a right to rule. And from 
1300 down to uh, the 1920s. Uh, that one family rules. And they also have an understanding that if the family should die out, which it became came within a whisker of doing on a couple of occasions for reasons that are very interesting but not part of this course, uh, it's understood that if the, Mongo, if the Ottoman family dies out, the family that will take over would be the rulers of the Crimea who are descendants of Genghis Khan. Uh, there's always this notion. Um, oh, I mentioned this title, Bamaat means uh, in-law, uh, relation to the family. Um, and then finally, uh, the, uh, the geographical orientation of the Iranian economy shifts uh, from, you know, after the Mongol period. Uh, the Mongols depend upon and revive the Silk Road but they tend to move the Silk Road north of the Caspian Sea instead of through Iran. Uh, some of the traffic goes through Iran, but when it go, does go through Iran, it ends up at the Black Sea uh, rather than in Baghdad, because Baghdad's been destroyed. So now um, uh, you have the emergence, also with the, the agricultural decline, of an axis in Iran that runs more from uh, the... Uh, northwest to southeast along the Zagros Mountains. People come into the Persian Gulf. They will go uh, to Shiraz, and then uh, trade routes will go northwestward through and along the Zagros Mountains into eastern Anatolia, and they will reach Trebizond in the Black Sea, and there they will make contact with European traders. The older route, which focused on the highway that crosses Iran from east to west, from Central Asia to Baghdad, that route pretty much um, uh, comes to an end. Um, so you get a, a, a different economic orientation in which the Zagros Mountains, uh, which are a very formidable geographical barrier, uh, tend to separate Iran from what comes west of it, even though throughout the Abbasid period and even uh, throughout the Seljuk period, uh, you would have trade back and forth on an east-to-west uh, basis uh, from Central Asia across Iran into, um, into Mesopotamia. And I think that's one of the reasons the, the, uh, the popular culture of Iran tends to separate more and more from the Arab world um, uh, because it is in less frequent contact. You know, the first time I went to Iran, having eaten the same... Arab bread in, you know, throughout the Arab world, pita or chubs, whatever you want to call it. You got to Iran and suddenly, hey, many different kinds of bread, local breads, here, there, elsewhere, and none of them are pita. I thought, well, that's interesting. Why, why don't we have a history of bread uh, in the Middle East? But we don't. Um, all right, uh, that's what I have to say about the Mongols. And on Thursday, which will be the last class, I want to talk about what transpires between the end of the, uh, of the Mongol uh, the Ilkhans in 1335 and the rise of the Safavids in 1500. Uh, the graduate student exams are available here. Are you?